Welcome to the Food and Drink Business Podcast. Your on-the-go bite of the food and beverage industry. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Food and Drink Business Podcast. My name's Grant McCarran, and as ever, I am joined by Kim Berry, the editor of Food and Drink Business, and also the host of this podcast. Kim, how are you doing today in wet and horrible Sydney? I know. It is, uh, yep, it's great weather for ducks up here at the moment. Um, How are you, Grant? Are you well? Yeah, not too bad. Shockingly, it's not too bad weather down here. We've actually had things drying on the line. Who knew <laughs> Melbourne leading Sydney? Well, it's just brief. Enjoy it while it lasts. Oh, no. <laughs> then, I'll, then I'll ostracise all our uh, listeners who are in Melbourne and it's big food manufacturing centre down there. So, uh, sorry. Today, we're joined by Karen Job, Head of Industry Engagement with the Independent Think Tank for Alternative Proteins, Food Frontier. Food Frontier has put out its State of the Industry report into the plant-based meat industry in Australia, and it's looking pretty good. Pretty much all aspects of it doubled, whether it was manufacturing revenue or the workforce uh, or the number of products available, and sale revenue for plant-based meats was up about 46%. So Karen's going to talk to us about that, but also much more about the, the industry as a whole. She's a seasoned food technology professional. She's held a wide range of roles across chilled and ambient product categories. Uh, she was working with the UK-based retailer Marks & Spencer for almost 20 years. She had global responsibilities in that role. At one point, she was company microbiologist. Uh, she's led the policy development, governance and standards on microbiological safety and spoilage. <laughs> Try saying that, I don't know, in a rush. And uh, most recently, she was the head of science and innovation, where she was developing and directing the food group's technical innovation strategy, which looked at new technologies, products and processes across the value chain. I don't think you sort of find anything much more innovative than uh, the plant-based or basically the alternative proteins space, I should say, at the moment. She's did a recent relocation to Australia. She's based in Melbourne. And she consults on technical and innovation requirements for food companies across the country. So her deep technical expertise and her passion for alternative proteins is being brought to the table today. (laughs) Hi, Karen. Hey there, Kim. I struggle to say microbiological as well, if it's any help, and I've been doing it for nearly 20 years. <laughs> See, I just, yeah, exactly. I'm quite, I'm quite certain there are people that just avoided that as a possible career choice because of difficulty in pronunciation. You wait till you, na- you name the actual bugs and then you get really difficult, but that's not what we're talking about today. I know, let's, uh, let's not talk bacteria. <laughs> just, let's, well, yeah, no, let's not, let's not. Um, so, tell us a bit more about what you're actually doing at Food Frontier. Cool. Yeah. So, I've been with Food Frontier since last July. I, um, as you said, I've recently moved to Melbourne. As everyone can hear from my accent, I am not Australian. I moved from the UK last March. I've been here just over a week, uh, sorry, a year and a week. And I, um, yeah, I joined Food Frontier in July and my role is head of industry engagement. So, it's a really broad role that's all about talking to people, listening to people, connecting people, helping the industry um, in its broadest sense. So, not just the manufacturers, but the whole industry from ingredients all the way through manufacturing to retail and food service and help them solve problems and help them exploit opportunities. Um, So yeah, it's uh, across all of alternative proteins. So as you mentioned, Food Frontier 
is an independent think tank uh, on alternative proteins, which is a broad subject. But what we focus on with our fairly limited resources is plant-based meat and cellular agriculture. So, um, yeah, with this, obviously there's broader things in alternative proteins like insects and things, but that's not what we look at. Yeah, sure. I don't think there's a more exciting space in the food and beverage industry at the moment than alternative proteins. Uh, do you think that's a fair call? I would agree with you. I think it's 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 exciting, but it's also moving so fast, which I think is part of what we've been talking about today, that the speed of change here, both here in Australia, but also globally, that's what makes it exciting. Whether it's investment, whether it's new technologies, whether it's how consumers are adopting it, um, that's what I think makes it exciting. And why why do you think that is? Why do you think it's just taken off like at such a rapid rate? I there's there's numerous reasons. I think some of it's the motivation for it, whether it's the consumer motivation, which we know is from some consumer research we did here at Food Frontier in 2019. Their primary motivator is health, but there's other motivators, ethics of the environment. Um, For some people, it's about animal welfare. Um, But then there's a bigger, more overarching need for this, that there's plenty of experts out there who've done a lot of research, um, the big one being the Eat Lancet, but there's plenty of research about how we can't sustain the way we produce protein at the moment. There just will not be enough protein to feed the population in in 30 years time. So that's why I think it's, it's the need for it. And the fact this isn't a fad, it's not a trend. So there's, there's plenty of food trends out there that are, some of them stick, some of them don't. This is so much more than that. This is, this is an absolute necessity for the future of, of feeding humanity on the planet. And I don't say that lightly. No. And I think that's one of the, I think it's really interesting that, that the response to that fact and how it's created this incredibly dynamic, fast-moving new sector compared to when everyone started to talk about climate change and, and, and the behavioural and the, and the lifestyle changes we had to make for that, which people still rail against. I think it's really interesting that this, is, that this has come further along in that journey in terms of the sustainability discussion and the reaction is now so much quicker and not questioned as much you know in terms of oh this company's doing this right that's let's go rather than sort of like ugh, you know what a load of nonsense yeah I mean, not everyone's there yet, I don't think, Kim. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> oh, no. No, no. <laughs> yeah, don't get me wrong. There are plenty of people out there. I know you're very passionate about it. But, um. <laughs> no, there are plenty of people out there. But, I mean, when you look at, say, the amount of money, you know, particularly, say, in the US that, that is getting thrown at the industry, it's quite staggering. It, I mean, it is. It, you know, Impossible Foods and is is one where, you know, the amount of investment that they're getting, you know, and Beyond Meat, I mean, you know, from Beyond Meat's public offering in May 2019 to February this year, its stock price more than doubled. So, that's from zero, it, you know, in May 2019. So, you know, I just think, yeah, there's still a lot of pushback and there's still a lot of side eye from a lot of people. But, within the industry, it's really taken a hold, you know. Yeah, there's, there's a reason. I, it's on the consumer piece, though, I think the reason is, I mean, so people, I talked about the bigger picture piece there about what we need for the planet. Um, but actually, there's a more kind of simple explanation that alternative proteins and um, plant-based meat offers people this really convenient alternative to help their meat reduction journey. So they've they've read somewhere they should be 
potentially reducing the meat in their diets. But actually, these plant-based meat products really help them with that because they're familiar formats. They're burgers and sausages. They're mints to make their bolognese. They're burgers to put on the barbecue. They know it's, it's nothing. It doesn't. It's not actually that scary. Um, but it helps them fulfil their needs. What sort of time frame do you think we're in in terms of looking at that, where we're getting the plant-based products in sim in familiar formats till we start moving into a market where it's not it's not coming in the form of a burger or or is it always going to be that it, it has to come in it will come in some sort of structure oh, wow not at all I mean I know there's an aspiration for globally for plant-based meat companies to try and replicate something like a, a fillet steak or a chicken a whole chicken breast um, because the idea is that it's that substitution back to my point about familiar formats the more it's, it's technically challenging and I know from from all my discussions with the amazing manufacturers in the industry here in Australia that actually it's it's not at the moment technically possible to do that but there's plenty of people working on it because um, the more we can make it convenient and accessible, then the faster that it will grow. And I think you, your point about investment is also that's partly what makes it exciting, but there's great investment here as well. I mean, the, the staggering figures that V2 have had so far have raised 77 million Aussie dollars and it's significant amounts of money that's being invested here in Australia, which is exciting. It's all very well talking about America, but it's so exciting to he- see that here in Australia that there's finance behind this. In the Australian market, where is that investment coming from? What you know, what particular groups or areas is is it really just sort of coming from private equity, or where's it at? It's it's all sorts of sources. Um, it's yes, yeah, so there is a lot from private equity, um, but we're starting to see funds and more and more. And one of my roles is to connect with that investor community, and the increase that I've seen in the last even just three months of funds being set up specifically for alternative proteins. Some of them have a very specific focus. So some of them are just interested in cellular agriculture. Some of them want, are interested in plant-based meat. Some of them are interested in, in the plant protein and that ingredient side of things. Um, but I am absolutely, since even in the short time, relatively speaking, since I started, have seen an increase in that focus, which again is encouraging. Uh, yeah, absolutely. The State of the Industry report uh, showed that the number of companies, Australian companies in the space, basically doubled uh, from financial year 19 to financial year 20. Uh, so, talk to me about that. What are, the, what are the types of companies that you're seeing coming in? Are they all brands wanting to get a product on a shelf or are they making ingredients or are they making equipment? Are they, you know, what, what are you seeing, in, seeing there? Oh, it's one of my favourite bits about the job, actually, if I'm honest, Kim. It's the diversity of the people that are in this space in Australia. We are seeing everything from chefs who are um, ex-chefs who are passionately getting involved in this through to international brands, um, big FFCG companies. There's, there's a real diversity of, of organisations that get involved in this. We're also seeing meat companies diversifying into this space, which, again, is exciting because they've got the knowledge and the technology and the processing. Yeah. That's a fascinating uh, development, isn't it? Can you talk to me a bit more about that? I mean, when you have, I I would have thought one of the big pushbacks against alternative proteins would be coming from the uh, traditional or conventional meat markets like like red meat or, or even poultry. So, but you're seeing some people within that space actually developing plant based product lines and brands. Is that right? Yeah, it is. I mean, they can see the economic potential of diversifying their businesses. So, this isn't about 
about replacement in its entirety of conventional uh, meat products. This is about saying that the fat, the population is growing globally, that the desire, the population is growing in areas that are particularly in, in Southeast Asia, where actually the population is growing and that middle class is growing and the, the desire to move their diets to a more po- protein than they would have had in their historically in their culture, that that is providing an opportunity for a greater demand for protein globally, which is back to something we spoke about earlier on about that need for for a different way and looking at the protein supply chain that's not just about conventional animal protein. This is about companies recognising that there's there's room for both. What are some of the challenges that the Australian industry is facing at the moment? Uh, okay, so there's, I mean, there's several. Uh, there's one of the biggest ones is that the, most of the companies, and I would say north of 90% of them, that are manufacturing plant based meat here in Australia would love to be able to buy domestically grown um, plant protein. So growing the crops and then processing it here um, to get the isolates and the concentrates that are then used to create the products. They would love to be able to buy it locally. Unfortunately, as we sit here today, there's currently only one organization that has set up a commercial operation that is actually processing Australian crops. So it's uh, Australian Plant Proteins funded by the Eat Group, which is here in Victoria. And they, um, it's great to see them come on track. They, they started producing last September. Really exciting moment to see that starting and there are more coming. Um, there's, there are more coming, but it's actually, there is an opportunity for that that's one that we talk to in the report, uh, and I'll say at the industry report, we talk about the fact that there's a there's a market for it, um, and that the reputation of the brand Australia has the market's not just here domestically to make plant based meat products for the domestic market. There's the export opportunity, both of the finished products and also of the added value crops. So rather than the farmers, there's farmers growing um, crops here that are perfect to go into plant-based meat products and other plant protein, other products that need plant-based protein, so bakery products, for example. But at the moment, they're selling their crops into commodity markets. And actually, if we had the infrastructure here to be able to process those crops in Australia, they could, one, have the certainty of contractors, contracts for their for what they're growing and then two they can add value to it so they could sell those added value plant proteins into asia as well as as the actual ingredient and then companies in asia can make plant-based meat out of it with australia with that brand australia and that trust absolutely yeah deserved trust that that comes with and i imagine that that market in being able to set up those markets carries far less volatility than than the commodity markets i mean absolutely yeah, you, know, you could contract you've, you've the crops. This, yeah, you, yeah, that's right. You know, there's another opportunity there that actually, um, if it was grown here and processed here, there's some amazing scientists in Australia that actually are looking at the genetics of the plants and plant breeding and how do you actually find exactly the right um, species of soy or pea or any other legume and actually pick the one that makes the best products and actually if you had that whole if you link the guys doing the innovation and the manufacturers back to the guys that are innovating in agriculture that's a really exciting opportunity that we're doing a lot of um, discussions and exploring that opportunity at the moment. 
Oh, that is that is an incredibly interesting and exciting space. We um, we will already now put a pin in that to come back and have a discussion just on that <laughs> a bit further down the track. But Great. so what is it in terms of, I mean, they're growing those crops already. Are there current mills or processing facilities that, that it's just a matter of a particular type of equipment or is it you need to build a whole new facility? What What's the situation there? It's quite like how specialised. It yeah, it's, right. it's not difficult, the, the, the technology at that point in the chain, but it is, it is large. There's a scale to it. Um, and obviously, to make it profitable for whoever is going to invest in it, there is a scale of investment that's needed. But it's not the, – the exciting technology – is actually in the manufacturing end, I think. And there's a few companies over here that have invested. And just last year, even, um, we saw Preform launch their factory, their new factory in Mount Kuringai. And they've they've got some great new technology going on there. And, and they're not the only ones, but there's that investment in technology is also really important. And back to your question of a few minutes ago about the opportunities and challenges, that there's the plant protein end, but then there's the manufacturing end. How do we make these? There's some great products out there. But then I'll be completely honest, there's some average products too and I'm not being held on which ones are which um, no. but actually <laughs> that continued evolution and innovation in this space to make them more appealing to consumers whether it's the taste whether it's the texture all of the organizations and the, the manufacturers in this space are, are continually doing that uh, and the retailers are, are demanding it and in some cases helping with it as well and that evolution here in Australia and also around the world means that these products are improving all the time. Um, so that's a really, it, it's, it's challenging because it's resource intensive. It needs investment in, in equipment and in ingredients and in talented people to do it, but it's, but it's happening. And it's, yeah, so the, the growth that we've seen that you've talked to, talked to in the report of the doubling of the manufacturing revenue in FY20, there's no reason that with all this exciting innovation and the products improving that we won't see that and more in the future. And I think this is one of the a, a challenge in terms of once you're getting to that consumer end, when the industry is young and still growing, that there's that issue that if people are trying things at the very beginning and perhaps the flavour or the texture is not that great, <laughs> how do you make them keep coming back or keep trying, you know, that, that it doesn't, it's kind of like we know that you have to start somewhere, but then how do you try and get a situation in the industry where there's a there's almost like a base standard or there's that the products are good that's going oh, out? Kim, you ask a question that I've spent a significant amount of my career exploring and actually doing. Um, <laughs> and you're right. And, and my number one piece on that is understanding the consumer. So I think, as I mentioned, we did some market research here at Food Frontier or consumer research um, in 2019, and we understand their drivers and their drivers are taste. And, um, and in taste, I'm talking in its broader organoleptic sense of texture and, and flavor and um, appearance and smell and everything, um, but also price. So, um, so is understanding what the consumer drivers and needs are. And that's still, and we call this out in the report, that's an area of opportunity in the, in the near future to really understand that. But yeah, that challenge of of improving the products is just that's just what the food industry does every day. That's what that's what being in food technology is all about, and um, that continued improvement. 
you find in any market that you're going to have those who are willing to push the boundaries and they may try it once and go, oh, that's not really good, but then they give it a few months and then try something else, try other products. And um, I've seen that you've got and been learning through these podcasts that you know, some of the kids these days are right into their their alternate meats and things like that, whereas a, an old fogey like me uh, who's you know, grown up on the meats is, is less likely to jump in. So do, do you see that this wonderful wave that's happening is more something that's going to benefit the next generation, the, the kids of you know, 15 to 25 right now and um, you know, that kind of thing who are – and even the ones younger – are they going to be the ones that are going to pick this up and really run with it while the rest of us turn into old dinosaur carnivores? <laughs> Not at all, Grant. Um, in fact, the, the consumer research that I mentioned before that we did just towards the back end of 2019 with Carmel Brunton showed that it was actually boomers leading the meat reduction trend. So, you, not in the slightest. This is something that's across all generations. So, yeah, nothing to be worried about. You are not going to be a carnivorous dinosaur or whatever you called yourself. <laughs> 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 so, so, so it really is the people who are being told by their doctor, "Hey, you have to change your diet," because it sounds like that for the boomers. It's you know, giving <laughs> there's, the there's extra another ten thing about the way in, and because um, sometimes it's going to be a bit scary. And I think one of those consumer points is that, and how do we make it easy for them? How do we encourage that trial? And I think we've spoken a bit about repeat purchase, but let's take a step back. And we think food service um, is a really exciting way that, because of what happened with the pandemic last year, and is still continuing to a point to this day then we kind of lost a, lost a little bit of momentum on that. But actually, we're seeing that really pick up. And there's, a, again, a whole section on the report about food service. And even despite the pandemic, how many of the the, um, the brands here are introducing plant-based options? And that food service is that easy, um, low-risk way into people trying it. And certainly, it's something at Food Frontier that we're hoping to engage with that side of the industry more in in. 2021 and see how we can help support them on that journey so that we can get more and more people realising how amazing plant-based meat can be as part of their diets. So we've talked, obviously, we've started to very loosely sort of refer to the state of the industry report for plant-based meat. Talk to us about some of the key findings that, that have come out of it. Yeah, Kim, so we're really excited. Our State of the Industry 2020 report that, as you said, we launched earlier this week. Um, we had, we've had some new modelling done by Deloitte Access Economics, which, as you said, the plant-based meat industry here in Australia has grown exponentially uh, from 2019 to 2020. It's doubled its manufacturing revenue and jobs. We've seen the number of new products in supermarkets also doubled, more than 200 products. And the category saw a 46% sales growth in retail. So we're really encouraged because that's well beyond the grocery sales growth that you saw in the major retailers in the same financial year. That's really interesting also that there was a doubling of the number of products. Is that across chilled and ambient or is it predominantly in the chilled and sort of frozen sections or how's that broken down? It's chilled and frozen. There is, yeah, in the, certainly in national retail, it's mainly chilled and frozen and you see quite a good split across the two at the moment. And um, that's probably an area worth having a, a little chat about. I mean, it's an interesting discussion I have with many of the manufacturers about the benefits of chilled versus frozen and the pros and cons of it. Because in a new emerging category such as this, then that getting to scale and getting to volume that means that we can get to that magic price parity that we know we need to get to with conventional meat, a massive part of that is about scale. And so, 
with with the freezer, you've got the advantage, obviously, staying slightly staying the obvious, but you've got longer shelf life. Whereas in the chiller, you've got a much shorter shelf life, just from the nature of the perishableness of the products. But then you get more of the trial and more experimentation um, when it's sat in the chill cabinet and someone's browsing the meat aisle and and then they come across these plant-based meat alternatives and and give them a try, which you get less experimentation in the freezer. So, like I say, it's a it's a conversation I often have with the the companies about which way to go, and some of them are doing both. Uh, I imagine that that's quite a challenge when you're still really in the early stages of you know new product development and you're just trying to actually just get your brand out there for recognition and um, consumer awareness that then you've got to factor in I don't want it to then not get bought and and have product that I'm producing that's then yeah you know, becoming yeah. just part of the food waste, yes. the food waste sort of crisis. So, well, it's about shelf life, and they say it's that balance of of chilled. And I think it's about the retailers as well. And and the retailers would say this themselves that they're still getting to know the strategy and their ranging strategies for this, and which stores it sells really well in, and which ones it doesn't. The demographic that's buying it, it it's a it's a. And coming from a retailer myself, I know this all too well. Um, that it's understanding that, and under, back to understanding that consumer. It's not just what is the consumer enjoy and like it's it's how do they shop and and what do they buy it with and um that's the that's the day in the life of a of any retailer to understand that and then once (laughs) so with them understanding it then they put the right products in the right shops they don't get the waste they increase the sales the the industry makes more they can dilute their overheads and then the price comes down it's a that's why we're so excited about the opportunity for this sector because it is still an emerging sector and but actually the momentum it's got means that what I've just described, we're very much in that journey and it feels very positive looking forward about all of those things coming together in the coming years. This might make me sound like an idealist, but is this a space where some of those relationships, say between a company and, and a retailer or an ingredient supplier and a manufacturer, they're actually changing and not following the exact same lines of of more established products and categories? I feel like the conversations I'm having, I've had some really positive conversations about the opportunity this sector represents. I mean, it's not often you get such a new emerging um, category to explore and the certainly the senior leaders that I've spoken to in both the retailers see this as an exciting addition to their protein categories. And that's genuinely how they see it. This is adding to the sales. It's not taking anything away. And, and that attitude is really refreshing to hear. And then that translates down into the relationships, as you described, Kim, with the um, with the manufacturers. There's, there's always going to be that tension along the supply chain through ingredients to manufacturing to retail. That's, that's how it works. That's how the food industry works. But yeah, I think it's an it's an interesting category that's potentially, as you say, um, challenging some of those traditions, as you might have referred to it. So, Karen, what has what have been some other standouts? What's another standout for you that you've um, in the report? So, one we touched on earlier but didn't go into was the export opportunity. So, I think we talked about it in the context of um, the ingredient supply and the export of the um, value-added commodities. But actually, there's a really exciting opportunity, which some of the organizations, the brands and the companies here in Australia are already exploiting. Um, and and, can, and each week, I feel like there's a new newspaper article with a, a new opportunity that one of them has, has 
engaged and taken. Yeah. Um, I mean, Asia, that's home to half the world's population, represents one of the greatest demands for um, for meat um, and that increase in meat, which I think we talk, did talk about earlier. And and it's but it's also they're really used to meat alternatives. The culture in many of the countries actually is has eaten meat alternatives for centuries as part of their diet. So that demand, those two things together mean that that there's some really exciting numbers. Say for example, there's there's predicted to rise by 200% in the next five years in China and Thailand. So there's there's an opportunity there with the trust and reputation of Australian products. So And then with the free trade agreements, and there's all sorts of um, opportunity there that at Food Frontier, we're really trying to help the industry understand and ultimately exploit in a positive way. <laughs> Well, I guess a lo- I guess a lot of that scaffolding's already there, isn't it? In terms of trade agreements and in terms of the Australian reputation for having products and brands that are, you know, produced in a safe environment and you know that have a level of product integrity, uh, that figure is staggering for growth in China and Thailand. It's um, that's really quite something. Yeah, it's plant-based meat in in China and Thailand. I mean, that's significant. Um, and it's um, look, it's such. <sighs> It's such an exciting time. There, are, I feel like we have barely even scratched the surface. Uh, I really highly recommend anyone who is interested in this space at all take a look at the report because it goes into a lot more detail and nuance about all of these areas that we've talked about. Karen, what a joy! You just the passion, the passion you obviously and the experience that you have is just so valuable, and it's just been fantastic to talk to you. And yeah, I'd like to we we can do it again. That, <laughs> before that the would next, be lovely. I'd love to again before the next state of the industry report. We'll do it. We'll, you know, we'll do it every couple of months. And Definitely. Just go, what's happened now? I'll go. What's happened now? <laughs> I, I think one of the really interesting things. I mean, obviously, a lot of our listeners. Uh, and our audience in general are in the manufacturing space. And I think it just, that's a particularly exciting aspect of the sector where there is so much scope and potential to innovate and invest and become a player in that part of this remarkable growing market. Uh, So thank you so much. (laughs) It's been fantastic. It's a pleasure, Kim. You're very welcome. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we hope you've enjoyed this episode. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, Kim. Fantastic insights into what's going on in this really fast-moving and incredible new space of alternative proteins. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing more about what's going on here, and I'm sure we'll be bringing it to you in the not-too-distant future. Ladies and gentlemen, don't go too far away. We'll be back in the not-too-distant future with yet another episode as well. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Food and Drink Business Podcast, produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Food and Drink Business, owned and published by Yaffa Media. The views of the people featured on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of Food and Drink Business, Yaffa Media, or the guest's employer. The contents are copyright by Yaffa Media. If you wish to use any of this podcast's audio, please contact us via our website or send an email to editor at foodanddrinkbusiness.com.au. You can subscribe to this podcast via your preferred platform and read all the latest news on Australia's food and beverage industry at foodanddrinkbusiness.com.au. You've been listening to a Yappa Media Podcast.